Good morning, and wow. And uh, welcome again to FBC Pineville. First, for those of you who came this morning expecting to hear an excellent sermon from our lead pastor, you'll need to come back next Sunday. Second, you need to be aware that unlike our other elders, I have never taken a course in systematic theology. I have never attended Bible school, and I am not a seminary graduate. So why does that third point matter? Now I have the next slide, please. For the past six weeks, we've been working our way through Jesus' instructions to his 12 apostles in Matthew uh, chapter 10, as he's preparing them to go out into his plentiful harvest. And today, we begin our look at Matthew chapter 11. We will be looking at a situation involving impending death, which is not a comfort zone, but at least it's familiar territory. So let's take a, a quick look at uh, verse 1. I want to draw your attention to one thing. Jesus has sent his 12 apostles off to preach and heal throughout Galilee. They're not around. When we last saw John the Baptist in action, he was in the Judean wilderness at the Jordan River, attracting huge crowds, baptizing folks who came to repent of their sins, and even baptizing Jesus. Now his location and his situation have changed. So what... Ridley, where are we? Should be slide six. There we are. We'll get this. So what happened? May I have slide seven, please? John was a prophet, and as we will learn next week, he was much more than a prophet. And as Pastor Fay alluded to last week, Sometimes a prophet received a prophet's reward. So just like Amos, 800 years earlier, John had not hesitated to call out a corrupt king. Herod Antipas, the uh, tetrarch of Galilee and Perea, was a uh, son of Herod the Great, the uh, same guy who uh, killed all the uh, babies around uh, Jerusalem trying to uh, snuff out the uh, Messiah. Now, Herod Antipas may not have been quite as bloodthirsty as Herod the Great or as his brother Archelaus, but he was no sweetheart. He had no tolerance for troublemakers who might uh, stir up opposition to his authority. Now, given the size of John's following and given the respect that even his enemies, like the priests and the Pharisees and the scribes, had for John, he represented a uh, potential threat to the security of Herod's rule. 
Now, because John was not afraid to denounce uh, wickedness, he's locked up in uh, Herod's uh, fortress at Machaerus. Slide eight. There we are. Machaerus today. Um, so John is locked up in Herod Antipas's fortress, which is constructed on top of a mountain that Herod the Great uh, leveled off uh, just for the uh, purpose of uh, constructing a uh, fortress. And John understood that he was unlikely to be granted parole. If you get sent to the uh, dungeon at uh, Machaerus, you're not going to be released alive. However, some of his disciples took the risk of joining John in the uh, dungeon, and they were able to uh, come and go and act as his messengers to the outside world. I have slide number nine. Thank you. Now, looking at this verse from the skewed perspective of a hospice physician, I'm struck by the realism of uh, Matthew's account. One of the things that I noticed over 32 years of hospice uh, practice is that people looking death in the face do not regularly engage in chit-chat. John understands that any day, at any moment, his name could be added to the long list of potential revolutionaries killed by the command of Herod Antipas. And there's something about the prospect of impending death that clarifies thoughts, focuses minds, and John is pondering some very weighty issues. He is not worried about how the ducks did yesterday. So what makes this very simple, straightforward question in Matthew 11:3 so significant, especially so significant uh, to uh, John? Let's go back to the last time that we saw John in action. As we look at Matthew's account, and as we look at the uh, account of John, the uh, son of uh, Zebedee, you'll find that in uh, John chapter 1, um, it would seem that at the time that John baptized Jesus, that he had a pretty good handle on who Jesus was and had no doubt that he was the expected coming one. But now, as we look at the uh, question in, uh, Joe, I'm starting to get some feedback here. We good? Okay. Uh, now, as we look at the uh, question in uh, verse 3, it appears that there is a significant doubt that has entered John's mind. Wasted question. Uh, is doubt uncommon in uh, somebody uh, expecting uh, uh, impending death? Caleb? Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and in my professional opinion, the presence of John's doubt 
And the fact that Matthew was willing to report it lends credibility to the account that we have before us in the uh, Gospel of Matthew. If Matthew was setting out to uh, write a, a story of nonstop warm fuzzies, he would not have put this in here. Uh, this is realistic uh, stuff, people. So, slide number 11. Thank you. Um, so why does Don, John uh, ask the uh, question? If we take a look at the way that John frames the question, we wonder if there's something about Jesus that is not matching up with John's expectations. So what were John's expectations? Let's uh, take a look at slide number 12. If we go back to uh, Matthew 3, it sounds as though John is expecting a fire-breathing Messiah who is going to come in, clean house, burn the enemies uh, to a crisp. But, and uh, in uh, Matthew uh, 3, 7, John asks the uh, venomous Pharisees and Sadducees, you know, hey, who was it that uh, warned you that uh, impending wrath is coming. So this is uh, the Messiah that uh, uh, John is expecting. So what does Jesus do? Yeah, he rebukes the uh, Pharisees and the uh, Sadducees, but then he carves out uh, time to talk with the Pharisee Nicodemus when he could have been uh, going to bed early. Jesus clears out the uh, temple, not once but twice, but then he says that it's the meek who will inherit the earth. And at the end of Matthew 11, he is going to describe himself as meek and lowly of heart. Not quite a uh, perfect match of John's expectation of the uh, fire-breathing Messiah. Now, like Amos, uh, John sees injustice. He pronounces uh, God's righteous judgment, and he expects the uh, coming one to break the oppressor's yoke, to set everything right, perhaps with even a little bit of violence uh, thrown in. In Luke chapter 3, John tells the tax gatherers and the Roman soldiers You'd better stop uh, extorting the population. You'd better stop abusing uh, people. You'd uh, better stop the uh, forceful throwing your uh, weight around because uh, the uh, Messiah is coming and he's going to judge you. So what does Jesus do? He tells his followers to be mercy, merciful because they have a merciful Father in heaven. He tells them to love their enemies. He tells them to bless those who curse them and to pray for those who abuse them. Jesus honors the request of a Roman battalion commander and heals his servant. And he not only eats with tax collectors and other assorted sinners, but he uh, selects one of them, the guy writing this account, to be a member of his inner circle. So Jesus is just not fitting the profile of the Messiah that John is expecting. So is it starting to make sense 
Now I have slide number 13. Thank you. So is it starting to make sense why John is asking this question? John has expectations of what the uh, Messiah is uh, going to look like. He looks at Jesus and something just isn't adding up here. Okay? You see the contradiction? I'm getting a head nod there. Thank you. Um, and as I uh, said before, people who are facing impending death don't have a lot of time for chit-chat and wasted questions. They're focused on things that really matter. So why would the answer to this particular simple question matter to John? Now I have slide 14. Thank you. I'm going to suggest three possible reasons. And again, these are questions that are common to folks like John who are facing impending death. And I think that as we look at the uh, scripture, we, we can see that in there. More evidence in my mind that this is real stuff. Now I have slide 15. Thank you. Now, as Caden was reading earlier in uh, Luke chapter 1, from the time that John was eight days old, he had heard from his uh, parents, you are the prophet of the Most High. Uh, you're the one that Malachi was uh, talking about. By the time that John reached adulthood, he understood himself to be the voice crying in the wilderness that Isaiah described, calling Israel to prepare the way for the coming of Yahweh himself. John's entire identity is wrapped up in Jesus. If John really was the one who would be the forerunner of the expected Messiah, that would make John one of the most important people in all of Jewish history, right up there with Moses and Elijah. On the other hand, if Cousin Jesus is not really the expected coming one, Jesus is just another itinerant uh, preacher, and John is basically a nobody. Now I have slide 16. When the crowds uh, came out from uh, Jerusalem to uh, check out uh, John down there at the uh, Jordan River, it was like he had just popped up out of uh, nowhere. They'd probably forgotten that he was actually a priest's kid. John could have followed in the uh, footsteps of his dad. He could have lived a, uh, in a nice, cushy Jerusalem uh, suburb. He could have commuted up to the temple in uh, Jerusalem for four weeks out of the year. He could have had a steady income supported by the uh, priest's uh, portion of the uh, people's offerings. He, he could have had a pretty cush lifestyle. But instead, he's been living out in the uh, Judean wilderness for years. He's been wearing camel skins, and he's been eating bugs. Yes, Caden, I know he also got the wild honey, but you need something to gag down the bugs. 
So why in the world is he doing this? Why is he turning his back on a, a cushy uh, future to go out into the wilderness and eat bugs? Now, if he is, in fact, called by Yahweh as the forerunner for Messiah, the sacrifice, the discomfort, and even his impending death would make sense, would be worthwhile in God's larger uh, scheme of things. On the other hand, if his uh, dad's vision of the angel was a hallucination, if John was misinterpreting scripture and writing himself into the uh, book of Isaiah, he'd wasted his life. He'd abandoned a good future, and now he was uh, sitting in a dingy dungeon waiting for death. John's identity, everything he's given his life for, is riding on the answer to the simple question that he asked Jesus in Matthew 11.3. And it gets worse. Now I have slide 17, please. Whoa, that is slide 17. John's life, John's identity are wrapped up in the life and identity of Jesus. And beyond that, Jesus has been the sum and substance of John's message. If Jesus is not the expected uh, coming one, everything that John has been preaching for the last two years is worse than bad information. It's flat-out lie. If Jesus is not the expected uh, coming one, he is not the Lamb of God who takes away the uh, sin of the world. We could wonder, in that case, is the sin of the world ever going to be uh, taken away? Furthermore, as we uh, see in John uh, 137, two of his disciples, specifically Andrew and uh, uh, Johnny Zebedee uh, took John the Baptist's words at face value, and they immediately left John the Baptist and followed Jesus. If Jesus is not the expected coming one, John is responsible for convincing them to follow a phony. How many others has John potentially misled over the past two years. It gets even worse. As a matter of fact, it gets really bad. Slide 18. Worst of all, if Jesus is not the expected coming one, John has potentially violated the Ninth Commandment by bearing false witness. Now, granted, he's not bearing false witness against his neighbor, if we pick up Paul's thought in 1 Corinthians 15, John is bearing false witness against God himself. Furthermore, by bearing witness that Jesus is the Son of God, if Jesus is not the expected coming one, if Jesus is not, in fact, the uh, Son of God, John is committing uh, blasphemy. And he should have been stoned long before Herod Antipas uh, threw him 
into uh, prison. Slide number 19. So do you see how much is writing on this question in Matthew 11.3? May I have an amen or at least a yes? Okay, okay, we get a yes. So there's a lot writing on the answer to this uh, question. John is not asking out of academic interest or idle curiosity. This is really important, and again, Realistically, these are the kinds of issues that people facing impending death wrestle with. Who am I, anyway? What have I done with my life? Has my life amounted to anything, really? What kind of message or advice or example have I passed on to my coworkers or my friends or my kids? And yes, in fact, believers do ask, have asked, is my impending death a sign that I have offended God behind, beyond all hope of reconciliation? These are some of the uh, questions that our hospice uh, patients wrestled with. Now, Matthew is a repentant tax collector. He would not have known about any of this stuff. He couldn't have made it up out of thin air. It just wasn't his uh, background. But his record is exquisitely realistic. The issues that John is wrestling with here are real stuff. They're issues that you and I will wrestle with sooner or later, and I would recommend uh, sooner. Professional opinion. Slide number 20. So John asks a very simple, very straightforward yes-no question. Are you the guy or not? And how does Jesus respond? And Jesus answered and saith unto them, Go tell John, yes, I am the guy. No, that's not what he says. Is that slide 21? Okay. Is Jesus being rude here? Is he being evasive? Can Jesus not handle a yes-no question? I'm going to submit two, maybe three things that Jesus does here that persuade me that Jesus is, in fact, the great physician responding to someone who is wrestling with impending death. Slide number 22. Okay, we're good. First thing Jesus uh, does, and uh, um, this is a move that's uh, so good I stole it for years. The first thing that Jesus uh, does is he invites John's disciples 
to consider the evidence for themselves. Go and report to John what you hear and see. Now, one of the uh, things that I noticed for years is that folks who are facing impending death become very suspicious. They have a sense that life is not turning out the way they thought it should. And no matter what anybody says, things are not really okay. They expect nurses and chaplains and, worst of all, those physicians to say the nice things that they think that the, uh, uh, papal, that the patient wants to hear to give them warm fuzzies. So when I was uh, seeing a, a dying patient, um, if I could ask a friend or a family member who was there, uh, hey, look at this, or take a listen to this. And then if that person would tell the uh, patient, wow, I hear it, I see it. Hey, I've just established my uh, credibility that this is really uh, what's going on, and, and yeah, I, I understand. And Jesus takes this approach to John, granted at a uh, much higher level than I ever did. By raising the dead, Jesus has just reversed an irreversible process. Take my word for it, once those mitochondria come down, ain't nobody coming back except the widow's son at Nain, which if you look at the uh, parallel passage in Luke 7, is what just happened. So Jesus just did that. As we learned in Matthew 8, Jesus touches and heals a leper. Now, not only has he just cured an incurable disease, but he's also demonstrated that his compassion, his authority, are not limited by concerns about ceremonial defilement. If Steve Markell were here, he would tell you that by enabling the blind to see and by preaching the gospel to the poor, Jesus is just claiming for himself the descriptions of the uh, Messiah as given in Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61, respectfully. Jesus is laying out the evidence, and John doesn't have to worry about, yeah, but that's Jesus just talking about himself. John is hearing the evidence reported by his very own disciples based on their first-person observations. Second, John is showing uh, great, or Jesus is uh, showing great respect for uh, John. One of the uh, things that really uh, bothers uh, folks who are dying is when you 
treat them like they're either no longer there or no longer uh, capable of uh, thinking. Uh, Jesus does not do that for John. Uh, Jesus does not connect the job, the uh, dots, for John. In essence, what he is saying through John's uh, disciples is, I know you know the scriptures. You see yourself in Isaiah, you know, uh, Isaiah 35, Isaiah uh, 61. You see yourself in Malachi, chapter 4. Uh, you've heard the report of what I'm doing from your very own disciples. John, I know that you can put the pieces together under the guidance of my Holy Spirit. I'm confident that you're going to come to the right conclusion. So did John uh, make the uh, connections? Correct answer, we can't tell from this passage. You will have to come back next week. Third, through this entire process, Jesus treats John with superb gentleness. When folks are facing impending death, they need to hear the truth. They don't need to uh, have uh, smoke blown at them. But they need to hear it delivered with gentleness, not with harshness, slide number 23. So now it's our turn. Now my uh, 1977 New American uh, Standard Bible uses the uh, dangling uh, pronoun he. Carl Peterson would uh, tell you, yeah, yeah, but uh, other translations use any person or the one or anyone or everyone. The point is that Jesus is making a wide open statement here that applies to everybody, including John, including John's disciples, including me, including you all, including the uh, folks watching on uh, live stream. There are no exceptions. He gives a conditional blessing here. If you don't stumble over me, you are and forever will be blessed. Now, depending on your uh, translation, verse 6 may read, uh, stumble on account of me, fall away because of me, is not offended by me, or something uh, similar. The uh, Greek word here is skandaliste. If that uh, sounds like uh, scandalous, scandalize, or any of uh, those, yeah, that's where we get it from. The uh, translation that comes closest to Matthew's original uh, text is the uh, good old uh, Dewey rhymes, blessed is he that shall not be scandalized in me. Now, how could anybody be scandalized by Jesus? Slide number 24. <clears throat> One possibility is right here in this uh, passage back in uh, verse 3. John is expecting a, a Messiah who would come in, clean house, uh, set the barn on fire, uh, starting with uh, people like the Pharisees, the tax collectors, the uh, Roman... Uh, soldiers, 
the uh, Pharisees were expecting uh, someone who would scrupu scrupulously uh, keep their improved, expanded version of the uh, Law of Moses. Now, before we say, silly John, or stupid Pharisees, they should have known better. We need to ask if we ever look for another Jesus. Maybe a Jesus who will destroy, or at least severely uh, punish, those people who disagree with me. Or a Jesus who affirms everything I do and never corrects anyone. Or a Jesus who will make all my problems go away. Or a Jesus who just wants to make my life miserable by turning me into a Wycliffe minister. Uh, missionary or something. <clears throat> or a Jesus who will take me to heaven when I die and uh, will just butt out of my life in the meantime. As we have seen, as John realized in this passage, Jesus will be Jesus. He's not redefined or reconfigured according to John's expectations or according to the Pharisees' expectations. And he will not be redefined or reconfigured by my expectations or your expectations either. If you want an alternative Jesus, first of all, that Jesus does not exist. Second, that's called idolatry. Slide number 25. So, wishing for an alternative uh, Jesus is one issue. The other issues are belief and obedience. Now, if I understand 1 Peter 2 correctly, God the Father placed Jesus on this earth as a scandalous stone with the knowledge that some people are going to stumble over him, some people are going to be offended by him, and some people would be repelled by him. Others would find him infinitely precious. You know, a mountain-sized diamond or something like that, but, but more precious than anyone or anything else. Two options, one or the other. So what do we do? If you and I want to watch and listen to the Jesus who actually exists in action, we can start with the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of Luke or the Gospel of John. I would prescribe a dose to be taken at least once a week, and Sunday morning doesn't count. As you and I watch and listen to Jesus, 
the Jesus who really exists, we need to be asking ourselves, is this the Jesus I really believe in? Is this Jesus the one I embrace as infinitely valuable? Do I obey and follow this Jesus? Now then, in a moment, for those who have embraced the real Jesus, the Jesus we find in the Gospels, every week here at uh, FBC, we remind, remind ourselves that we are his people. We look back to his death on our behalf, and we look forward to proclaim to one another and to the world that he is coming again. Now, if you've not been uh, scandalized by the real Jesus, we invite you to join us in this celebration by coming to the uh, table. If you're not sure or if you would like to learn more about this Jesus, I invite you to talk with one of us after the uh, service. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have not left us in the uh, dark to try to imagine or to not even think about uh, imagining your eternal son. You have left us a thoroughly credible record of who he is, what he said, what he did. And we find him infinitely uh, precious. Father, we pray that we would believe him, that we would obey him, and that we would follow him wherever he leads. And as we uh, come this morning to remember his death, in the taking of the bread and the uh, fruit of the uh, vine, we pray that we would remain faithful to him until he comes.